I'm passing out an outline similar to the one we used last Sunday evening, except this pertains to the husband's responsibilities in marriage. Amen. And I hope that in the few minutes that we're going to spend racing through it like we did the wife's part last Sunday, that every man in here will humble himself and tremble before the Word of God. Amen. Because this is the Word of the Lord to us men That's right. as to how we're treating our wives already married to them. Now, it will be used tomorrow night to bind the two that will be married in our assembly. So when they approach a table and sign a marriage covenant, you'll know what they're signing. But that's the last reference I'll have to them, because I want us all to think about our own marriages. Amen. It's too easy to think about someone else's marriage. Let's think about our own. Let's remind ourselves before we start why we have a covenant. A marriage hasn't taken place until there is a covenant. It doesn't have to be written. It can be spoken, but there must be a covenant before God. And I want to take you back to the verse that we began with last Lord's Day because I want you to remember it. And it's in Malachi chapter 2. So looking back at Malachi chapter 2, let's see the warning that was given there by the Lord to the people of Israel. It's a lengthy reading from verses 11 through 16, and I will focus on one verse, but I want to point out that this is a very serious passage about marriage. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 11 begins with these words, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel. Now when you read treachery and abomination, you're thinking of maybe offering your children in sacrifice to Molech or an act of sodomy or bestiality like the Canaanites engaged in. Mm-hmm. But let's just keep reading. Malachi 2.11 For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Marriages outside the Lord by men who already had Jewish wives. And they were hiding their treachery by misusing the divorce laws of Israel. An abomination, treachery, and profaning the holiness of the Lord by marrying women outside the Lord. The Lord says in verse 12, the Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. But I want you to come down to verse 14 because I don't want to preach on this whole text, even though it is wonderful words. Verse 13 tells us men, that if our wives go to his altar, that is, if our wives pray to the Lord and they have tears on their face or tears in their heart, it is not to our advantage and profit as men because the Lord sees those tears. The Lord knows that the woman is the one under subjection and he protects her. Remember when Solomon looked around in all of life and he saw some that they had no helper? And sometimes in a marriage, a woman doesn't have a helper. But brethren, she has the greatest helper. She has the Lord. And if she'll put her trust in him, he'll take care of her. I want you to see in verse 13, This have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, and with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. That is addressed to men. We come to the 14th verse. Yet ye say... Wherefore, how are we doing this? Why are you angry? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth 
against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is entered into by a promise before God of how you're going to treat each other. And these men had entered into that covenant with these Jewish wives, had set them aside for foreign women. God saw those Jewish wives shedding tears at his altar. He called it treachery. He called it an abomination. He said it was profaning the holiness of the Lord. And he would cut off the man that did that. Every one of us men ought to tremble before the holy God. If we're not going to tremble, then our religion means nothing because this is his word. Amen. This is his warning to men that we better treat our wives right. right. That's why the covenant. We enter into it as promises made before God. I am not going to repeat the paragraphs at the beginning of this covenant because I did that last Lord's Day. They simply acknowledge that marriage was designed by God. Men didn't invent it. God created it. And based on that creation and reading the Bible and what it has to say about marriage, a person ought to be willing to enter into a covenant. I mentioned last Lord's Day, and I'll just mention it in passing again, there is a movement in our nation in several states. Their legislature has come up with covenants themselves and are endorsing covenants to make marriage because they're trying to stem the incredible number of divorces and the lack of regard for marriage by attaching a covenant to it. And for that, we can be thankful Amen. that we live in a nation that even thinks of such a thing. Sure. But they're doing it to bring God back into marriage by making a covenant. We're try we didn't know that when this was put together. I just want people married that I have anything to do with their marriage, making a little more serious and specific promises to each other than just the words for better or for worse. Amen. The little Catholic formula that Baptists have copied for the last couple hundred years. I want each of our married people, especially the two that will be married tomorrow, to be able to remind themselves what they promise to do toward their spouse, and when they're together considering their marriage, to be able to remind each other. Amen. And also that as parents and pastor, we can help remind them what they've promised to each other when the time calls for it. Right. And may God see our seriousness about marriage and receive it as a sacrifice from us. Amen. Let's look at covenant number one. It's the same as the wife's from last Sunday. It's yeah. what Nathan stood up here a few moments ago and said <coughs> was the most important thing to him, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. To make my personal relationship with Jesus Christ and a holy body and spirit my top priority, as this is the chief purpose for my existence and the primary means of maximizing marital success and happiness. Let's look at Psalm 73 as a reference for that particular point. These are verses I emphasized heavily about 18 months ago. I know that some of you memorized them, but I want you to read them again with me. When a person is walking with the Lord carefully every day in fellowship with His Spirit and in fellowship with Christ and wanting to obey the Bible because it's God's written revelation, they're going to be a perfect spouse. Amen. The only thing that keeps us from being perfect spouses is not walking with the Lord every day. Right. It's when we get carnally minded we get selfish. A man walking with the Lord is the opposite of selfish. He's bearing the fruit of love, which is unselfish, by the power of the Spirit within him. Amen. But if we quench the Spirit, we can. how many nanoseconds does it take to get selfish? 
about one nanosecond for our flesh if we're not walking with the Lord. But if we're walking with the Lord, we bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. Those are wonderful things that make a marriage great. So we put the Lord first. Not only will you treat your spouse right and your spouse treats you right, you'll have the power of the Holy Ghost to be able to do it. Because without the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't treat one another the way we ought to. It's too hard. Our flesh is too corrupt and too weak. Let's read the verses, Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. The psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I can promise every married couple and all of you that tell the truth will agree that there have been many times in your marriage where you've been disappointed with your spouse. You've been disappointed with marriage in general. My flesh and my heart faileth because you're disappointed. It didn't turn out to be as great as you were hoping it would be. It didn't turn out to be as great as you thought it would be. So your flesh and your heart faileth. But... God is the strength of your heart if He's your portion forever, and He can sustain you through that. And if a husband and a wife will make the Lord their everlasting portion, no matter what a spouse does, you can be happy and content, and your heart will not fail. If you put your heart totally in your spouse, your heart's going to fail, but not if it's in the Lord. One of the references under this point, this is what a man should covenant together with his wife, to do, to make the Lord first in their marriage. Stephen, I'm glad you're here tonight. Let's look at covenant number two, or point number two. To lead her and any children that God may give by example, instruction, and training in holiness, truth, and wisdom for the glory of God and their profit and comfort. This is where the husband promises to be the spiritual leader in the home. The woman ought not to be the spiritual leader. Other religions can have it that way, not in Christianity. The father, the husband, ought to be the spiritual leader of his wife and of his children. He's to bring his children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if the wife will learn anything, the Bible says, let her ask her husband at home. 1 Corinthians 14. I'd like us to turn, though, to Genesis 18 and see what the Lord said about Abraham. Genesis chapter 18. And I've lost my modesty for Stephen and Nathan, so I want to mention them again by name, that I hope they're listening to this right now, to be these kind of men. Genesis 18 and verse 19, and all the rest of us that are married, and all the rest of you young men that are not yet married. This is a mighty man of valor. Amen. Genesis 18, 19, God said of Abraham, I know him. Now, he knows everything. But he knew Abraham affectionately because he agreed with everything that Abraham did. He was the friend of God. I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. I know Abraham. 
He's going to command his household to keep the way of the Lord. This is a great man. This is part of a marriage covenant that I'm going to lead my wife and I'm going to lead my children to serve the Lord. Joshua would put it this way. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. That is a great man and a great husband. And that's a husband that a woman wants to marry. Number three, to remember that a good wife is from the Lord. So she is on loan to me from the Most High for safekeeping and nurturing and loving affection. Amen. You don't get to take her to heaven, do you? Because in heaven we're not given in marriage. You have her on loan for a little while. And who gave her to you? The Lord gave her to you. So we turn to, to Proverbs chapter 18 just to see that and be reminded that a wife is on loan from the Lord and we want to return our borrowed property in the best condition possible, better than we received it by the grace of God. Proverbs 18 and verse 22. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Whoso findeth a wife. See, there were hunting wives in the Old Testament. Even Adam found one. He woke up from a nap, and there was one waiting for him. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. She's on loan from the Lord. So young men, older men, how are we treating the woman that has been loaned to us from the Lord? That was number three. Number four, to remember I am responsible for keeping a happy marriage by directing her as a loving leader and managing our relationship to solve all differences in love. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3 for this one. At the present time, this is one of my favorite exhortations to men. To be the manager of conflict resolution in a marriage. Marriage marriage from the man's standpoint is management. He needs to manage his wife so that the relationship remains in love and happy. And managing her means when he senses that there's a problem, he addresses the problem by finding out what it is, identifying it, and correcting it. And it may be that he needs to apologize for having done something wrong, and so he does it thoroughly and completely until the two are happy again. If she's done something wrong, he lovingly and with authority corrects her and gets her to apologize completely and thoroughly for it, and he stays at it until the job is done. It is nothing more than managing in any sense of the word. It is identifying problems and resolving them. I call it a manager of conflict resolution because you can sense or feel or see a conflict. It needs to be resolved, and there's only one person given the responsibility to do it, and it's not the wife. It's the husband. That is why I say that if there is a problem in a marriage or the marriage is unhappy, it is the husband's fault and the husband's responsibility to correct it. And though I preach submission as strongly as it's taught in the Bible, Women know that's where I stand, and the men know that's where I stand. Because if there's a problem in a company, the buck stops with the CEO. If there's a problem among children, the buck stops with the father. 
If there's a problem that's let go in a church, the buck stops with the pastor. If there's a problem in a nation, the buck stops with the president. Things can be done, and they ought to be done by the one in authority. And in a marriage, the husband was given that authority, and he should use it to keep the marriage happy. He should sit his wife down and in a loving way that still includes authority, solve the conflict. Right. It might take five minutes if you've got an easy woman. It might take several hours if she's bitter and you've heard her in the past and you haven't done this before. But it can be done, and a good manager does it. See, we can't fire our wives. You know, if you're a manager on the job, you can get rid of the employees that take all that time. But a wife we've made a covenant with that we're going to be a conflict manager forever. Right. Because we signed point number four. Oh. I had a person tell me recently that what they thought about marriage covenants was every time they looked at it, why in the world did I sign that? And then once they get right with the Lord, they understand that the points are good and that they ought to be doing those things. Right. Do you understand the, the conflict of emotion? Yep. I totally understand that. But brethren, let's do these things. Amen. Number five. Oh, I turned you to Colossians chapter 3 and I didn't read it. It's verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Your wife does something that disappoints you or you can feel some coldness in your marriage. There's a couple things you can do. You can get bitter against her, disappointed and angry, and wish you were married to someone else. All counterproductive and ungodly, and the Lord sees it all as treachery and profaning the holiness of the Lord. Right. Or you can love her by sitting her down and resolving the problem until you both are completely happy and at peace with each other. Totally different. One is godly, one is ungodly. One is manly, and one is a little boy who's never grown up. The little boy gets mad. A man can sit his wife down, and with a combination, combination of finesse and power, restore unity. It's management. All men are called to it. Amen. It's what they should commit to when they marry. Number five, to despise and avoid anger, hatred, threats, physical violence, and depression as being works of the flesh. These things are not allowed in marriage. They're not allowed in life. And so these are things that we ought to avoid and, and hate and repudiate as works of the flesh and keep ourselves pure from them. Amen. Number six, to reject any foolish, hurtful, or lustful comparisons to other women and to make gentle comparisons only when necessary in sober affection to identify a godly Christian example. Let me use Proverbs chapter 5 for this, although it would fit for a couple of these points. Proverbs chapter 5. One of the most hurtful things that a husband can ever do to his wife is to make comparisons to other women. True. And it's so easy to do if a husband's bitter or impatient and doesn't want to take the time to correct his wife and make her into the perfect wife that she could be if he'd put the time into her. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 19 says, Let her be, this is to a husband about his wife, let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe, let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Amen. 
Why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. The Lord watches every man's heart and how every man takes care of his wife. And one of the most harmful things is to make comparisons with other women. Protect your wife. Don't do that to her. Love her. This is one of the the terms of a covenant before God. Now, making good comparisons of a spiritual woman in a sober way and an affectionate way is scriptural also, because the New Testament teaches us that we ought to set up good spiritual examples both for men and women to follow. But I think all the men know what I'm talking about. To compare a woman in some short, sarcastic, cutting way just to get at your wife to make her feel inferior and under your thumb. That's not Christian. That's not godly. And the Bible warns us about that. That isn't being gentle or kind to your wife. And so we include a clause like that in our covenant to exhort all of us as men to avoid that. Let's go to number seven. I hope that all the men will remember that my employment is a means to life and not its end. It is so easy in our society to think that your employment or a great profession is an end for your existence. It's called a fast-track young man who gets on a job program that's aiming for the top, and so his job becomes the end for his life. He's living to work, and that's not what the Bible teaches. To remember my employment is a means to life and not its end, and to make my employment serve my marriage rather than my marriage serving my employment. Now, men have to go to work. And when men have to go to work, the wife ought to help the man go to work and be the best worker that he can be and do all that she can for the man while he's at work. But the employment should not be the end or the most important thing in his life. Employment is just a means to survive. It's not a means to get rich. The Bible warns us about that. And men who set their hearts on getting rich bring upon themselves many foolish and hurtful lusts, First Timothy chapter 6 tells us, which destroys lives, and that includes a marriage life. Right. In fact, this is so much true that in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 5, it tells husbands, in the first year of marriage, they're not to be charged with any business away from home, nor with any war, so that they can stay at home with their wife for an entire year and cheer up their wife that they've taken. No war, no military service, and no job, calling you away from home. That doesn't mean they sat at home and played checkers every day. That means he was working at home, but he wasn't being called away to Cairo or to Syria on business. He was there to cheer up his wife for a whole year. That shows the order right there, that employment serves the marriage, not marriage serving the employment. Let's go to number eight. To love my wife sacrificially. In order to secure her perfection, and thereby my greatest pleasure, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, for himself. I've heard Ephesians 5 explained so many times, and so often it's missed. If Ephesians 5 is not explained, then the husband is doing all the sacrificing in marriage, and that is not the case. The woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. The man is to be sacrificial in his love for this purpose and to this extent in order to make his wife perfect so that he derives greater pleasure from her. 
That is how Jesus Christ loved the church. Jesus Christ did not sacrifice himself completely for the church simply in order to make the church great. He sacrificed himself for the church to make the church great, and now I quote, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so if you read through Ephesians chapter 5, you can see the motivation. That's why it says, no man ever yet hated his own flesh. You serve your own flesh so that it serves you well. And if you take care of a wife well, she will serve you well. And that is the motivation of Ephesians chapter 5. And that's why Christ loved the church. Jesus Christ did not die for anyone because he felt sorry for them. Jesus Christ died for sinners and gave his life in order that he might display what an infinitely loving God he is. Amen. And so that throughout eternity, he would have us there as his bride singing his praises for his own honor and glory. And that's what's taught in Ephesians chapter 5. And so we ought to be willing to sacrifice for our wives in order to make them more perfect, and thereby we derive greater benefit ourselves. That is a, we call that sometimes a win-win situation. That's what that is. If you'll think about it, in order to make your wife perfect so that you can derive greater pleasure and happiness in your marriage, guess what you have to do to get there? You've got to make your wife perfect. Now, how do you make her perfect? You love her sacrificially. That's win-win. I love the Word of God. Someone said tonight, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Yes, it is. Even in marriage, it's perfect. Number nine, to knowingly... Love my wife with honor, gentleness, tenderness, and sensitivity without any bitterness, remembering she is the weaker vessel, yet deserving my honor as an equal heir of the grace of eternal life. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 3 is our verse to look at for this one of the verses that are listed. 1 Peter chapter 3. This church ought to be a collection of the greatest marriages in the city of Greenville, in the county of Greenville, in the state of South Carolina, because of the wisdom that God's Word's given us, if we'll simply live by it, the greatest marriages. And we can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I believe I said it last Lord's Day, we can exceed the website if we would have marriages that were like the Bible describes. Because everyone would see that our religion is so superior to what they see around us. And we would show it by the way that husbands love their wives and the way the wives love their husbands, as we saw last Lord's Day. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, the first, three, the first six verses have been to the wife. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. That means that a husband should know women and that he should treat his wife accordingly by recognizing her differences, her weaknesses, and yet what the last part of the verse is going to tell us about women. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. You know, we honor children. Let me try to think of an example for you, just to help you understand how the verse is worded. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. It is a weak person 
that takes advantage of those that are weak around them. Do you remember what happened on the Titanic? The men stayed and were willing to let the women and children go. Now, in that particular case, and in all cases, it has to be judged on its own merits. But what I'm trying to communicate is it's weakness to despise and hurt those that are under your authority. It's strength to know that they're weaker and to give them honor accordingly. Giving honor unto the wife, this is the word of God, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. There are two reasons a man ought to honor his wife. She is the weaker vessel, and so she needs more honor, protection, support, overlooking her failures, and two, she is an equal heir of the grace of life. In Jesus Christ, legally and finally, there is no difference between male and female. Galatians 3.28 tells us that there's no difference between Jew and Greek, bond and free, male and female. And as being heirs together of eternal life, they've both been saved equally. As far as our functional relationship in life, she's the weaker vessel, and she was created to serve her husband. That's what the Bible teaches. But a wise husband dwells with her and lives with her, remembering those two things. And if he doesn't do it, his prayers are hindered. That sounds very similar to Malachi chapter 2, doesn't it? Where the Lord said, because I have tears at my altar from your wives... I'm not going to receive your sacrifices. And here it is. Our prayers are hindered if we are not treating our wives in this knowing way. Number 10. To cherish my wife is very special for as long as we shall live and to particularly do so during our first year together. I add that last part because Deuteronomy 24, 5 says it. Let's see the word cherish in Ephesians chapter 5. To cherish something is to consider it and count it very valuable, very precious. So you cherish it because it's dear to you. You prize it as being very important to you. And so husbands are to cherish their wives. It's in verse 29. For no man, Ephesians 5.29, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. Amen. The Lord cherishes the church, and we're to cherish our wives. That's a commandment. Number 11, to nourish my wife. What does that mean? How is it different from cherish? To cherish your wife is to hold her as being very special, and to treat her as being special. To nourish her is to feed feed her or provide the things for her that will help her grow. So it's worded, to nourish my wife and promote her growth and development as a virtuous and fruitful Christian woman. That's the word nourish. To provide the freedom, the means, the help, the support, the direction. Did I say freedom? Let me say it again. The freedom to be able to do the things in which she can develop to be a better woman. Who benefits? She does, and you do. And the Lord is honored by it. And that's in verse 29 also. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. I want to preach the whole counsel of God. You know that I preach a woman's submission. I also want to preach the man's responsibility, and that's to nourish his wife, which means to provide her the means for her to grow and develop and become the full-blooming flower that God intended her to be and the virtuous Christian woman that God intended her to be. Amen. Number 12, to look and think only on her as the object of my love and sexual desire and not to look or think on any other. 
memory verse. Someone quote it for me. Job 31, 1. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Part of the marriage covenant is point number 12, to look and think only upon your wife as the object of your sexual love. 13. To gently, unselfishly, and often love her sexually in those benevolent ways she desires and needs without any defrauding, remembering the wisdom of her physical design and the holy instruction of Solomon. God put a book in the Bible on how a man can love a woman and should love a woman. And 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 uses the words that are in this clause very carefully on protecting a woman's interest in the marriage bed that she is to be taken care of in a proper way that suits her needs and desires, and it's not to, there's no defrauding to be allowed. The Lord, in, the Lord does not recognize any difference in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about sexual rights and responsibilities between men and women. They're equal between both parties in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In fact, the order of that passage will surprise you. Number 14. To forgive fully and finally, without bitterness, her failures, and never recall events from the past at any time. Now, that's an easy one. I guess we can just go right over it. I know I get dry sometimes. I wish I wasn't dry. I wish I could captivate your hearts every time that we open the Word of God. But when you look at verse, when you look at, it's not a verse yet. This didn't come from Mount Sinai, by the way. Number 14, to forgive fully and finally without bitterness. Husbands, love your wives. Colossians 3.19, the hardest verse in the New Testament. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Ephesians chapter 4, listen to these words. I read them last Sunday night for the same point on the woman's side. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind, one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now, what if we did that to each other's failures? That's what we've got to do, because that's what the Lord just commanded us. That wasn't an optional way of living. That's what the Lord wants you to do towards your wife, forgiving her and never bringing it up again. Some of you are great historians. You can remember everything that has been done in the past, and you may have even forgiven each individual event. But whenever you get in a fight, up it comes, and out it comes in a flood. And the Bible tells us that is not to be done. The the Lord does not do that to us, and we're to forgive others as He has forgiven us. Number 15, to remember the highest standard of love is that of Paul in his definition of Christian charity. Fifteen phrases of 1 Corinthians 13 cannot be improved upon. No one has touched the value of that one sentence. They've written books on love. They've sung a thousand songs called love songs. No one's ever touched Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. 
beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. Amen. And now abide these three, faith, hope, and charity. But the greatest of these is charity. Amen. Remember that. If there's a verse designed for a refrigerator hanging, Amen. it's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, and the 15 <clears throat> phrases of it for us all to treat our spouses that way and for us all to treat each other that way. Right. Number 16, to communicate openly and honestly with her about all things with kindness and honesty. Is it hard for you when you're a little depressed and discouraged and your wife says, what are you thinking about? Nothing. I just don't feel like talking about it right now. Well, it's hard for two people to get along that way. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Amen. And you can't be agreed unless you're talking about things. The number one problem in most marriages is communication. And that doesn't mean we ought to have a little bit of it in our marriages because it's the number one problem. It means we ought not to have a problem with communication because we know it's the number one problem, so we want to work on that harder than anyone else or harder than anything else. For those that have the M curse or that are part melancholy, when they're in a depression or they're discouraged, they don't want to talk. So they clam up and go into a cold war, and all it does is break down the marriage and create bitterness, and you think you're helping. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. Get control of yourself because there's a God in heaven and he sent Jesus Christ to die for us and sit down with your wife and talk it out. That's what God gave her to you for. She's a help. Meet for Adam when he's depressed and needs someone to talk to that'll always comfort him. So you all heard that, right, women? That'll comfort him and help him when he's discouraged about something and he does talk. Number 17, we got to keep moving here. Number 17, to allow her complete liberty of conscience to meekly correct me by the word of God when I intend to sin and when needed to solicit parental or other Christian help in such matters without fear of reprisal. There's not a verse in the Bible that says that a marriage is off limits to other people. Not a verse in the Bible. Because if we truly care for each other as a brother and a sister, we want to help our brothers and we want to help our sisters. Right. And sometimes we may need help. We may need parents being involved or we may need brothers and sisters if we trust them involved. This particular point is for a husband to build in his wife, not a critical spirit, but if I'm sinning, and you remember the word of God while I'm belligerently going ahead with some idea of mine and you know it's wrong, I'm giving you leave to bring the word of God to bear on me and to remind me of what we've been taught and that I shouldn't be doing that. Amen. That should happen so seldom that it's a great exception because the men that I'm talking to should live righteously in holy lives. But at the same time, the greatest help that a wife could ever be is to be a check when you are heading towards sin. And in order for her to do that, without fear of reprisal, is for you to build in her a godly character like Abigail had. Abigail was a beautiful woman with good understanding in 1 Samuel 25, and when her husband was about to kill some of David's servants, she took matters into her own hand. 
She left the house, did not tell Nabal what she was doing, waited till he was drunk, went and visited with David and said, and arranged the whole, the whole there's a whole chapter in the Bible about it, First Samuel chapter 25, and God blessed her abundantly for that. God killed her husband because he was a fool, and she ended up being one of David's wives. But the point is, the Bible tells us very clearly there, that woman was not afraid of her husband when it came to lives being lost and sin being done. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 6. First Peter 3, 6 tells us that women ought to be afraid of their husbands without any amazement. Those, that little clause there at the end of 1 Peter 3, 6 means that a woman ought not to be so afraid of her husband that when she's faced with a choice, she cannot think for herself because she's intimidated by her husband. And so a wise husband teaches his wife that that's not going to happen in this marriage. I need you to help me. Let's together covenant that we're going to seek God. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, I'm going to lead you to the Lord Jesus Christ and spiritual living in the home. But that one time that I'm slipping, remind me. Number 18, to go to bed together each night without bitterness or wrath, but rather with peaceful and godly contentment, which is great gain. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, is what Ephesians 4.26 says. And this is as good as life gets. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter what you do or what you had for supper. This is as good as it gets. If you can go to bed with your wife in peace and you can hold her there and drift off to sleep with maybe the last words coming from your mouth as a prayer, you two are at peace with each other and you're both at peace with the Lord, it doesn't get any better. There is nothing you can add under the sun to make life better. In fact, the simpler and poorer your life the better because there's fewer things for you to worry about while you're holding her there making your final prayer to the Lord. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That is a successful life. I have tried to teach my sons that, and and I believe it myself, and I want them to believe it, to work hard, but that is just a means to survive Life is walking with, in peace with your Lord and fellowship with Him and doing it with your wife. And if you can go to bed at night with the three of you all content with each other and at peace with each other, those of us who've tried a few things to find happiness know that that's as good as it gets. Amen. And I've taught you before that if the water's dripping through the, the, the roof... And you have to take a frying pan or a pan out and put it in the kitchen to collect the water that's dripping. It, it doesn't really matter because you're at peace with the Lord and with your wife. And that is a wonderful existence. Right. Number 19. To remember marriage is permanent, so reconciliation and renewal are superior to separation or divorce by the power of Christ. You know, I've heard people say, we just need a while to be apart from each other. <laughs> because the Bible doesn't allow that. If you separate from your spouse thinking that being apart is going to help you, you're defrauding your spouse and you're, building, you're letting bitter, bitterness grow. You're not taking it away. That's not conflict resolution. Conflict resolution is sitting down with the spouse and, and getting rid of whatever's there. Number 20, to use the Lord's means for solving offenses between us rather than the flesh's revenge and the world's escapes. When you're hurt in a marriage, what does your flesh automatically say? I want to get back. That's what your flesh says. So I'm saying here, 
Don't do that. What's the world's solution? Separate for a while, which is what I just mentioned from the previous point. But let's use the Lord's means. The Lord's means, Proverbs 19.11, the first reference, is it's the glory of a man to pass over a transgression. That's a simple means. Matthew chapter 5 is go make peace before you offer any sacrifices to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 13 is to endure it. Number 21. Husbands, honor her parents and family as your own and encourage her in her duties to her family. When we marry, we not only marry a person, we marry a family. And we owe those responsibilities to both families. And so both spouses should be honoring each other's families and their own and encouraging that to be done by their spouse. I'm honored to have my wife's parents here tonight. I'm honored to have them here this morning. And I mean that very seriously because when I read Exodus chapter 18, I see the great deal that Moses made when Jethro came and visited him. And if you ever want to read a touching passage, go read the first 12 verses of Exodus chapter 18. It's my pleasure to have my wife's parents here with me. He disappointed me greatly by coming in yesterday instead of Thursday night because on Thursday night I had planned to take him out for dinner, just him, because I wanted to honor him, but I'm, I'm going to get him on Tuesday if he'll stay long enough. I hope that all of you have a chance to meet them both. They took great care of one little girl for me. It's pretty intimidating to try to take care of her after the way he did. She had him wrapped around her little finger all her life. Still does. Go ask him what he thinks of his daughter after the service. Number 22, to remember my love and care... This is uh, John Doe speaking. To remember my love and care of Mary should always reflect the mystery of our Lord's love and care of his church. A husband has that wonderful opportunity of creating a living picture of Jesus Christ's love for his church. May the Lord bless us to show that in our marriages. Number 23. To remember that her conduct, good or bad, does not justify my violation or neglect of these holy obligations to the Lord and her. Now, that doesn't mean when she's had some bad conduct that you don't go help her correct it. It just means that when she's had some bad bad conduct and she's not doing all that she ought to be doing, that doesn't give you leave to give up on the responsibilities God's given you. It means that you, as the conflict resolution manager, need to sit down with your wife and get it taken care of. It... You know, how many times have I heard these kind of words? If my husband treated me better, I would submit more. What? Where did you get that? That comes from one direction. James chapter 3 tells me where that comes from. It comes from hell. That is excusing your sin by pointing out someone else's. That is not wisdom that comes from above. Wisdom that comes from above makes peace by doing what is righteous. Amen. The, the greatest way to correct your spouse's faults is to bury them with kindness. That's what the Bible teaches. If your spouse is treating you like an enemy, then treat them how Jesus told you to treat enemies. Love them to death. Yeah. Romans chapter 12 and several other places. 
you'll heap coals of fire on their head. That's what the Bible teaches. Don't let their failure justify your failure. Use their failure as an opportunity to overcome evil with good. Ever heard those words before? They're in the same place. Romans chapter 12. Do not let evil overcome you, but overcome evil with good. The last point, to cheerfully submit to inquiries by my parents, her parents, and our pastor regarding my life, marriage, and family. This is an opportunity for parents to stay involved in their children just because they're often married. You know, parents, for instance... Sherry and I are just celebrating now, this month, 25 years of being married. We have these children that are getting married that haven't been married 25 seconds yet. When these two get back from their honeymoon, we're still going to be 25 years ahead of them. We can, we can help. On the other side, how many years? 35. 35. Well, between us, we've got 60 years. That's a lot of days. They're going to come back in a few weeks and only have a few days under their belts, and it's going to be days of adjustment. We're already adjusted in many ways. We can help. But if children are married and then close the door to parents ever being involved or helping, they're on their own, and as we all know who've been married, on our own, it's pretty hard. And so this clause is in here. May the Lord bless this covenant. Brethren, this is written to show our seriousness about marriage to the Lord. And to help these two, and whatever Brother Jim uses with you two, to have marriages that honor him and adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and our review of these simple points.